By 1912, a combination of covert talks between the French and British armies and the unreasoning anti-German bias of certain bureaucrats in the foreign and war offices had committed Britain to support the French in a war with Germany. The British cabinet loudly and angrily disapproved. But Prime Minister Asquith, Foreign Secretary Grey, War Secretary Haldane and their new recruit, First Lord of the Admiralty, Churchill, just ignored them. The Germans were understandably alarmed at the tone of British diplomacy and of the virulent anti-German reporting of the right-wing British press. In February 1912, therefore, the Kaiser sent a personal invitation to the Foreign Secretary, Edward Grey, to come and talk things over. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, let's see what happens. In February 1912, the Kaiser, alarmed at the anti-German drift of the British right-wing press and of a very influential clique in its foreign office, had personally invited Britain's Foreign Secretary Edward Grey to Berlin. They could, quotes, talk things over. Hopefully they could establish, quotes, better relations between the two countries. So what did Grey do? Well, of course, he rudely turned the Kaiser down. Although he was Foreign Secretary, he never went abroad. He'd already... <laughs> He'd already turned the Germans down three years before, in 1909. On both occasions, he claimed that to talk to the Germans would upset the French. Which, of course, as a way to achieve European stability and peace, and in the light of Grey's often repeated boast that he was holding the balance of power in Europe, was an entirely circular argument. After all, all it achieved was to upset the Germans instead. But by 1912, the pressure to do something to relax international tensions was too great even for someone of Grey's inveterate idleness. The context was a crisis which had broken out in Morocco in 1911. School textbooks will tell you that the Germans had ambitions to establish an African empire and so sent a gunboat to menace the French colony of Morocco. University textbooks tell you that the Germans dispatched a gunboat in an attempt to break the Anglo-French Entente. The reality is probably neither of these things. After a previous spat in 1905, France, Spain and Germany had agreed on a common approach to Morocco. But in May 1911, the French, under pressure from their own press and the machinations of their own anti-German clique, had broken the agreement and occupied the Moroccan city of Fez with an army. According to historian Christopher Clarke, whose book The Sleepwalkers is a particularly level-headed study of all this, the appearance of an antique German gunboat which had been waiting to be scrapped for two years was therefore quite a measured German response to the violation of an international agreement by the French. It meant that the crisis was quickly diffused after new negotiations. But the Moroccan crisis of 1911 had given the right-wing British press the chance to polish up its anti-German rhetoric once more and to stoke up international tension. When the Germans again invited Grey for talks, therefore, this time, he wasn't able to refuse outright. Instead, he sent Richard Haldane to Berlin in his place. 
Grey informed the Germans in advance that Haldane would only go if the German programme for building more warships were on the table for discussion. Whatever we were taught in school about German plans for world naval domination, the Germans quickly agreed. Before he went, Haldane invited Grey to lunch at his house with the colonial secretary, Lulu Harcourt. Harcourt took along a large map of Africa. Over lunch, they discussed an extraordinary scheme for the British and the Germans to carve up the Portuguese Empire. In fact, the British and Germans had actually signed a secret treaty back in 1898 to divide the Portuguese Empire between them. By 1912, there was a real possibility it might happen, because back in 1910 there had been a revolution in Lisbon, and Portugal's overseas power had collapsed. Well, so much for not trusting the Germans, hmm? or trying not to upset the French. As we keep saying, the British and Germans always had plenty more reasons for working together than for fighting each other. Haldane himself had a strong affection for Germany. As we've seen, he'd studied his degree there and spoke fluent German. But his own advisers at the War Office were loudly anti-German. He was also committed to supporting Edward Grey, who was as anti-German as any of the Mandarins. As we saw in a previous discussion, Grey, Haldane and Asquith had conspired to work together back in 1905, come what may, in what is called the Relugus Compact, named after Grey's hunting lodge in Scotland, where it had been agreed. So Haldane was in an awkward position, but he was above all aware that the peace of Europe might hang on getting an agreement in Berlin with the Kaiser. No wonder he was anxious about this mission. A couple of days before he went, he met Harcourt again during a service at St Paul's Cathedral. Harcourt reported that Haldane, quotes, feels this is the chance of his life, feels as if he had trained himself for just this opportunity. When Haldane nervously reached Berlin, however, he found the German Chancellor Theobald von Bethmann Holweg so keen to negotiate that they were quickly able to agree the outline of a deal. The Germans would limit their naval building so that the British Navy would always be significantly the larger. So much for the naval race. In return, the British would agree to remain neutral if there were a war, so long, and these were, as we shall see, crucial caveats, so long as neither side had started the war and it didn't conflict with their other commitments. The two men also discussed the plan to divide the Portuguese colonies between them. A deal looked relatively easy to do. It would be a major breakthrough in relaxing European tension. Well, Haldane's 1912 talks remain controversial. Many historians are inclined to claim that the Germans were simply divided amongst themselves, or weren't sincere, or were secretly plotting to break up the Anglo-French Entente, or that Bethmann Holweg had no authority to agree anything with Haldane. The problem is that this view simply reflects the documents left by the anti-German Foreign Office bureaucrats, and they're highly coloured by their anti-German sentiment. But were the Germans being devious or insincere? At the very least, this is a case of the pot calling the kettle black. The French, for example, were badly and bitterly divided between those who wanted to deal with Germany and those who did not. Early in 1912, the French Prime Minister was forced to resign when it was shown that, despairing of getting any agreement in Paris's poisonous political atmosphere, he'd resorted to making the 1911 Morocco Agreement with the Germans behind everyone else's back. And of course, no bunch of politicians and bureaucrats in Europe were more divided than the British, nor, as we shall see, so insincere.
February 1912, the British War Secretary, Richard Haldane, travelled to Berlin for talks with the German Chancellor, and they quickly came to an agreement. The fact was that the Germans and the British had very good reason to strike a deal in the face of their common fear and mistrust of the Russians. War with Britain, as well as with France and Russia, was the very last thing the Germans wanted to contemplate. And since there was absolutely no prospect whatever that the German navy could make itself at any point in the near or even distant future anything approaching the equal of Britain's Royal Navy, a naval agreement, rather than a naval race, would suit Berlin very well indeed. Churchill did his disgraceful best to scupper Haldane's talks in Germany. He chose exactly this moment to give a speech in Glasgow, roundly criticising the Germans and promising to keep the Clydeside dockyards busy, building new ships for the Royal Navy. Harcourt complained formally to the King, George V. He said that it was a malicious attempt to destroy Haldane's talks. He was right. But Haldane returned to London with the proposals he'd hammered out with Bethman Holweg, and he was full of hope. When he heard about the German offer, John Morley, Secretary of State for India, argued passionately and logically for accepting an agreement with Germany. The British should recruit the Germans to help contain the Russian threat in Persia and on the Indian borders. Morley was in by far the best position to judge the issue. In his study of the talks, David Owen, himself a former foreign secretary, lists 14 ministers, including Harcourt, who at some point in these months agreed with Morley and declared that they were in favour of making an agreement there and then with Germany. That's a clear majority of the cabinet. Owen, however, also shows that once Haldane brought his deal home, the then Foreign Secretary, Edward Grey, deliberately sabotaged it. Harcourt's notes in Cabinet record that Grey was, quote, very stiff, evidently afraid of losing French entente. The Foreign Secretary, in fact, boldly lied to Cabinet and to the press that the Germans were demanding, quote, absolute neutrality, and that Britain should stay out of a war in all circumstances. It was simply not what Haldane and Bethman Holweg had agreed. Grey went even further. He refused point-blank to allow the word neutrality anywhere in any agreement that he had anything to do with. However high-sounding his rhetoric, of course, Grey was just desperate to hold on to the military agreement with the French, which had by now, and whatever the Cabinet thought, stealthily evolved into a military alliance. Grey bluntly told Haldane, his relugus mate, that it was much more important to keep good relations with the French than with the Germans. As a result, in one extraordinary moment, Haldane found himself telling the cabinet that the Kaiser had wanted nothing less than a full-scale Anglo-German alliance. But it was another outright lie. So, when, at the end of March 1912, Anglo-German talks broke up without any agreement, it wasn't because of insincerity or confusion on the German side. The insincerity and confusion were on the British side. Whatever the anti-German brigade in Whitehall tried to claim, the talks collapsed because of the poisonous atmosphere toward Germany they'd created, and which had even led Grey and Haldane barefacedly to lie to the British cabinet. In the end, only the discussions about dividing up the Portuguese Empire continued, and they were still going on when war was declared in 1914. Grey had thrown away a golden opportunity not only to disrupt the dangerous drift of Europe into two armed factions, but also to recruit German help to solve the awkward Russian problem in Persia. Former Foreign Secretary David Owen writes with barely concealed anger and shock about these events. He comments dryly that the only thing Asquith could have done was to replace Grey with Harcourt as Foreign Secretary. But Asquith was, of course, committed to Grey in the Relugus Compact, 
and was blindly unwilling to kick him out of the job. So the British completely missed the opportunity to recruit German help to solve the mounting problem they had with Russian incursions into Persia. As we've seen, control over Persia was crucial for British overland and telegraph connections to India. And India was the jewel in Britain's crown. And by 1912, a solution in Persia was even more pressing than ever before because Persian oil, discovered in 1908, had become essential to the plans of the British Navy. And that, of course, was because of what Churchill was up to. Gray had thrown away a fine opportunity, not only to disrupt the drift of Europe into two armed camps, but also to get German help to contain Russian ambitions in the East, and especially in the strategically crucial region of Persia. And now the Persian problem became dramatically more acute. One of the first things that Churchill had done when he had been appointed in charge of the Navy had been to order an inquiry into running warships on oil rather than coal. The answer had come back that it would cut the time the ships spent in harbour refuelling. But there was a problem. Britain had plenty of coal, but it had to buy oil from the Dutch or the Americans. Unless, of course, the promising new oil field that had been discovered in Persia in 1908 could supply the navy instead. Now, by 1912, the oil prospectors had set up a new company, the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, and spent almost all of their capital building 200 kilometres of pipeline. It straggled and struggled over unforgiving terrain to a vast new refinery on the Persian Gulf. They discovered that their oil was, well, it was too smelly to use for heating houses. But it seemed perfect for fueling warships. Churchill sniffed an opportunity. The Anglo-Persian Oil Company was by now in financial difficulties. Churchill proposed to bail them out, and as part of the deal, to get their oil for the Navy the British government began negotiating to buy £2 million of Anglo-Persian stock and become its largest shareholder. Churchill argued that it would solve the Royal Navy's problem and mend the oil men's fortunes. Churchill's brilliant scheme, however, made Gray's Persian headache much worse. Now he would absolutely have to protect not only Persian roads and telegraph cables from the marauding Russians, but also the new and extremely vulnerable Persian oil wells, pipeline and refinery. The army in India was too weak to do it, and the distance is too great for reinforcements to be supplied from Britain. And by rejecting a deal with the Germans, Gray had just thrown away by far his best diplomatic card against the Russians. Churchill, at the Admiralty, was gung-ho. He had no time for agreeing anything with the Germans anyway. Exactly the opposite. He was trying to strike a naval deal with the French. Harcourt's cabinet notes show that hours and hours of cabinet time were spent in the summer of 1912 wrangling over Churchill's new scheme. Churchill's irrepressible fizzing Catherine will of ideas, which would alternately inspire and exasperate colleagues and the American president during the Second World War, threatened at times to overwhelm cabinet government back in 1912. Churchill's latest scheme was that the French and the British navies would divide things up between them. The British would patrol the Channel, but the French would protect the whole Mediterranean, and that meant the vital routes to British interests in Egypt, India, and crucially, Persia. This bizarre notion was necessary, claimed Churchill, with endless lists of statistics and predictions, to save the British having to build many more warships, to fight off Germany and her allies, and their enormous fleets of warships, 
which of course had yet to materialise, uh, but no doubt would, uh, someday, uh, perhaps even one day soon. Especially since Gray had just thrown away the opportunity to do a deal with the Germans to limit shipbuilding. So, Churchill had proposed the French patrol the Mediterranean and the British police the Channel. Well, what would happen if a European war broke out? The whole assumption, scribbled Harcourt furiously during the cabinet meeting, quotes, is of possibility of France and England being allied in a war with Germany. Of course, that was the only way Churchill's fancy new scheme of working with the French Navy could ever work. It amounted, in effect, to an Anglo-French naval alliance, in addition to the army one. In spitting frustration, Harcourt, Morley and their allies in Cabinet yet again forced Grey to agree a statement that nothing had been agreed, quotes, committing either government to come to the assistance of the other in time of war. As we shall see, Grey famously lied about this to Parliament at the crucial moment when war was breaking out. Well, whatever Grey agreed to in Cabinet, he'd allowed the British Army to negotiate detailed joint plans with the French, and now Churchill had done exactly the same with the two navies. Grey, Churchill and the other anti-Germans had effectively tied the British government's hands and British fortunes to the national priorities of France. And since the French were tied by a military alliance to Russia, the British were hanging on Moscow's apron strings too. How on earth this was supposed to contain galloping Russian ambitions in Persia is a diplomatic conundrum too convoluted to attempt. Gray's best, in fact his only hope, was that violence wouldn't break out between the highly armed power blocks of Europe, or in the volatile lands of the Balkans, or the explosive Middle East, or the fragile Indian subcontinent. Entirely predictably, it did. It had started back in 1911 in China. Gray and his cabinet associates Asquith, Haldane and Churchill had allowed Britain to drift into what was effectively a military and now also a naval alliance with France. Since the French were militarily allied to the Russians, this was supposed, apparently, to encourage the Russians to behave themselves in Persia and the Near East. Unlike the alternative, which was doing a simple deal with the Germans, this Byzantine policy was, of course, an extremely long shot. And by 1912, at the moment when Grey destroyed the last real hope of a deal with the Germans, it was already in tatters. In 1911, after nearly 260 years of rule, the Chinese Qing dynasty fell. Chinese power across their massive empire had been crumbling for years, and the Russians and the Japanese had been nibbling away at its edges. For the British, the collapse of the Qing rulers was a nightmare. British trade with China was immense, greater even than with India. British banks had invested millions. Even more serious, the Himalayan nations that China had ruled along India's northern border, especially Tibet, were now in chaos. The Dalai Lama, Tibet's religious leader and ruler, fled to India. And it wasn't long, predictably, inevitably, before Russians began turning up in the Dalai Lama's old mountainous home. The whole point of the Anglo-Russian Convention of 1907 had been to prevent the Russians edging any closer to India. Pretty much from the start, also entirely predictably for anyone who knew anything about Russia at the time, the Russians had ignored it. They kept on creeping closer and closer to British India. 
After a revolution in St. Petersburg in Russia in 1905, the Russian Tsar had offered reforms which included cheap rail travel for poor farmers and the promise of new lands in the east. In 1907 alone, 600,000 Russians had taken up this wonderful offer. So the Russians had pushed out into Mongolia in the north and Chinese Turkestan in the south. By 1912, Russians disguised as monks were training the Tibetan army and Russian rifles were spotted in the Tibetan capital, Lhasa. It meant that the Russians were now less than 200 kilometres from the Indian border. As a means of protecting either Persia or India, rapprochement with Russia had always in practice been a non-starter. By 1914, if not many years before, the position of India, the jewel in Britain's imperial crown, therefore looked utterly hopeless. And Churchill's newly acquired oil for his ships in Persia looked no better. The British complained. The Russians, as they always did, complained back. They would, they said, much rather expand into the old Turkish Empire in Europe, which meant the small Balkan countries to the south and east of Austria and Russia, like Bosnia, Serbia. They'd been ruled for centuries from Istanbul. But as the Turkish Empire slid into its final decline, there'd been a scramble for independence and for takeover by the neighbouring powers. Austria had started it in 1908 by unilaterally seizing Bosnia. But when the Russians had protested about that and attempted to dispatch their ships down the Balkan waterways, the British hadn't supported them. Nor, to be fair, had their allies the French. So, argued St Petersburg, if the British would not support them going south into the Balkans and Serbia and the other little countries that used to be ruled by Turkey, they had no choice but to go east, into Persia, along the Indian borders. It was, in fact, difficult to fault the Russian logic. It was in this extremely difficult and tense situation that on the 28th of June 1914, the Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Bosnia by Serbian terrorists. It couldn't have happened in a worse place and at a worse time, as we shall see next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Café Pod. History Café Pod.